chapter 19. John chapter 19. We began this journey through the Gospel of John way back in September of last year. This is our 30th message in the Gospel of John. Yeah, it's taken that long, everybody. I know, it's been, and it's been awesome. I mean, the Gospel of John is a wonderful piece of literature that tells the story of the life and the teachings of Jesus, but also the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we come today with this, um, and by the way, we have three more, three more to go, three more to go, and then we're going to be done with the Gospel of John. So just as we, as we come to this, and as we come to the end of the book, we're coming to a, a passage which is really the climax of the book. This is the central point of the book. Even more than the resurrection is the climax of the book. John wants to make it clear that this point of Jesus being on the cross, the death of Jesus, Jesus on the cross, is a moment of glorification and, a, and the climax, the height of his retelling of his life. What we might look at and what people might look at as a low point John will incorporate this use of irony. Again, this is great literature that we have in the Gospel of John, that something that looks one way is actually another, that this, this point of uh, simultaneously, this moment where he seems to be hanging in his greatest humiliation, that he has been overcome by the world, is actually the moment of his greatest glorification in which he has given himself for the world. And so we have this really interesting juxtaposition of the humiliation of Jesus, but also the exaltation of Jesus, where he is proclaimed king on an international stage and where he announces that his work has been completed. It's a great irony, and, we, and we're, so we're, as we look at this passage, we want to explore this tension that the Gospel of John feels and that we might feel when we see Jesus on the cross overcome by the world, and we see it through the eyes of God that Jesus is doing the work of the Father and finishing the work of the Father. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at John chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. I just want to walk through a few things about this and then make some comments at the end where we reflect on Jesus' statement at the very end where he says, it is finished. It is done. It is completed. So let's look at 1916. It says here that Pilate delivered him over to be crucified and that the soldiers then took Jesus, and verse 17, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. After Pilate, after the trial, last week we looked at the trial but, and we, we know a little bit about, the, about crucifixion in the ancient world, but there's no one way to do it. As a matter of fact, not a lot of detail in ancient texts about how someone goes through this death penalty of crucifixion. Actually, the Gospels are some of the most detailed records that we have of this. It, it simply was not something that you talked about in public discourse or in public company. The details of pain and agony and blood, those were left for kind of the tabloids of the day. They were called the romances. And these romances would kind of embellish all of these these details. But the Gospels, true to form of of the ancient world, don't talk much about it. They simply say, he was crucified. 
Now, I want to say a couple things about, one, the place where this happens. It says that the place is called Golgotha. Um, and it says that um, the, the word Golgotha is, is in Aramaic, and it means, as it says here, the place of the skull. In Greek, it calls it the tapos cranium, the cranium. You guys know the word cranium? It means head, right? And so Golgotha means the place of the skull. Now, when this all gets translated into Latin, you guys are like, we, are, we got three languages going on all the time here. But when this gets translated into Latin, it's called the place of Calvaria. And the word Calvaria means skull in Latin. And that's where we get our word Calvary. So when you talk about Calvary, the cross on Calvary, that, so you could either call it Golgotha, you could call it the place of the skull, or you could call it Calvary. And so many of our hymns talk about Calvary is where our victory was won, or we have movements like Calvary Chapel or like Calvary Church. But every time Calvary is mentioned, it's talking about this place. Now, it says that Jesus carried his own cross. There's no standard way of crucifying someone. This is pieced together from other places, but it was pretty much customary that you would have poles on, that were sunk into the ground, and probably the place, this Calvary place, Golgotha, the place of the skull, is the place where today the modern church of the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is at. Anybody been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? If you were on the trip that we just took, we went to this place. It's very hard to picture these days because they built a church over this extended rock face where the crucifixion likely took place. And sometimes you think like, like people, you know, when you go to Israel and you go to Jerusalem and they're like, oh, I'll show you the place where such and such happened. And you're like, yeah, how do you know it happened? Well, it's like because I make money bringing people here to show them the place where it happened. Now, that's probably not the case at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It is very likely the spot. But it's hard to imagine because as you go into the church, you have to take a stairway up to the top of where this rock face is that they built the church on top of. And they have like plexiglass over all of the rock that you, can, that you can look at. Probably because people were like chiseling out pieces to take home. I know none of you would do that. It's just like if you go to the Valley of Elah where David slew Goliath, like there's all these rock, you know, you're picking up rocks and things like that. And so the Israeli Department of Tourism dumps a bunch of rocks into the, the bed. <laughs> anyway, no, you know, I don't want to expose anything here. But that, anyway, but you go to, to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and you have to imagine that you have this huge rock face, and as you look into the rock face, on the, if you look on the, the, uh, the plexiglass, you look in, there are slots where you would see big beams that could get sunk down into the rock face. And the, this is an ancient church. It was built in about 300 AD, and this place was probably a place where there would have been public crucifixions, and you would have these kind of these, these large beams that were sunk into the ground, maybe about 10 feet tall, and then the, the condemned would carry their own cross beams from the place of the trial, and that was a customary thing in the ancient world. Even Jesus himself talks about taking up your cross beam and following him. That's one of the things that Jesus mentions. And so here we have this illusion. It says that Jesus carried his own cross. Now, there, in other Gospels, it talks about Simon of Cyrene that helps him carry his cross. John doesn't mention that. And that might have been because there were some who said, um, 
who actually argued that maybe it was Simon of Cyrene who got confused for Jesus and they killed him instead of Jesus and Jesus ran off um, and lived the rest of his life. Those, that's actually the, the Muslim view. And there are others, the Gnostics of the day argued that Jesus didn't die on the cross. So John is probably making it clear that Jesus and Jesus alone did this work and he actually dies. We'll see at the end of this whole thing that you have a spear into his side that's like, yes, he died. Like dead, dead. Not just mostly dead, dead, dead. So it's important for us to understand what John is trying to accomplish here. So Jesus carries his own crossbeam. We already have the, the, the beams in place. And they go to the place of the skull. And it says that there were three that were crucified with Jesus in the middle. And this is probably a nod to Isaiah 53 that talks about Jesus being numbered among sinners. And it says that he's in the middle. you got two on the outside and one in the middle. And the one in the middle would have been the one of notoriety. Whoever it was that was the leader of this group or the one that was most notable would have been placed in the center. And again, you can see the irony of John. That here you have criminals that are being, that we have, uh, exec- that are being executed, capital punishment, and you have these criminals, and the most, notor- the most notorious of them is in the middle, Jesus. And of course, the irony is, of course he is. He's the one most notable. He's the one who is most uh, exalted and in front and center. And even though it, it's this large string of things in the Gospel of John, where those who would uh, say one thing without really understanding what they're saying are actually accomplishing what God is, do, is, is wanting to do without actually knowing that they are accomplishing what God is wanting to accomplish. So three are crucified. Jesus is the middle. And this is where we get so much of the language of the Christian tradition and the imagery of the Christian tradition. Three crosses on a rock face called Calvary coming right here from the Gospel of John. One other detail that John wants to make clear, look in verse 19, is the inscription above Jesus. Verse 19, Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So Pilate commands that there's an inscription, and this would also be customary in executions, is that you would take the title, the the reason, the charge against the person, maybe it was disobedient slave. A lot of examples in the ancient world of disobedient slaves being killed and crucified. Um, we might, it might be thief. That might be the, the charge. Or a defeated general. Oftentimes defeated generals were crucified as well as a show of force of the conquering armies. In this case, it said, King of the Jews. And it was not just written in Aramaic or the language of the Hebrews of the day. It was also written in Greek. And it was also written in Latin. Latin would have been the official language of the army and of the, the, the politicians of the day. Greek would have been the common trade language. The language locally would have been Aramaic. And so in three languages, 
we have this inscription that says King of the Jews. And as the person would be paraded through the city with their crossbeam, oftentimes this inscription would be hung around their neck so that everybody could see that. And then once they got to the place where they were to be crucified, it would be placed above their heads. So Pilate writes this, and it becomes so prominent that the people walking by are like, hey, I think this should be changed, right? Like, it's so prominent. The, this, the, the placard is so prominent that they're like, we got to change the placard. And Pilate's like, no, no, no. I, I've, already been, I've already been manipulated by you guys. I'm not changing any of this. Even with this protest. Excuse me, my watch is talking to me. There we go. So this serves as another example of John's irony, saying that something true, people are saying something true about Jesus, that he is king of the Jews, while not grasping its real significance. We saw this earlier in chapter 11, when Caiaphas, you know, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and everybody's like, hey, if he keeps doing these signs, everybody's going to go after them, and we're going to lose our place. And Caiaphas is like, hey, He prophesied earlier in the year, it's better if one man dies for the nation. And he sees that as, as uh, as really permission then to do away with Jesus, to kill him. And he doesn't realize that what God is doing is God is doing something different through that prophecy. And so Caiaphas says it's better for one man to die. He doesn't understand what he's saying. Pilate says this is Jesus, king of the Jews. He doesn't understand what he's saying. But John is saying, you guys know what we're talking about here. And God is taking something that people are meaning for evil, and God is using this to accomplish the greatest work in all of humanity. And I suppose this is just one point where we have to kind of stop and recognize sometimes the things that happen to us that are the worst things that could ever happen to us or to any person that God might have a plan to accomplish something unintentionally. The person who did this to you or what you did was the worst thing you could possibly imagine. But God says, I have a way of taking things that have destroyed people and turning them around for my glory. And if you have any question about that, you just look at Jesus on the cross. What was a horrible, horrible crime against humanity, no matter how you slice it, the, the practice of crucifixion is a crime against humanity to anyone who would experience that. And God says, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to take that and I'm going to redeem that. I'm going to use that and I'm going to proclaim what is true, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, my Son, is the true King. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do it in every nation and every tongue, and it's going to start with that placard above him, and that every tribe and tongue will hear that Jesus Christ is Lord. And God says, I will not, I will not be confounded by the sin of this world. I will not. I refuse. You think about this. God refuses to let what has been done to you or what you have done to get in the way of redeeming you. He refuses. He says, no. 
I will not allow it. I will not allow it. We will redeem, and I'm going to prove this to you by taking the very worst thing that you could ever imagine happen, which is I come down, my son comes down, and the world turns on him and kills him in the most heinous way possible. And I'm going to take that, and I'm going to make it the symbol of redemption for the entire world. God will not have it. He won't have it. And I don't know, I don't know what you've done, and I don't know what's been done to you. But I know in a room like this, if we heard the stories, it would make us double over. It would put us in the fetal position. It would, we, would, uh, we would recognize uh, just the depths of human depravity in this world that has either happened to us or that we've even participated in. But God says, no, no, that's not, that's not the end of the story. I am powerful enough to overcome sin. I am powerful enough. Is God powerful enough to overcome sin? Yes, he is. And sometimes we hear that, some, look, sometimes we hear that and we're like, that's great for everyone else, but you don't know about me. And I'm like, look, I know enough to know about you. I know enough to know about me. And sometimes the hardest thing is to allow God's redemptive purposes to come into my own life. We celebrate when it comes into someone else's life. But sometimes there's some block, there's some kind of blockage to allowing God's redemptive purposes into our own lives. I don't know exactly why that is. I'm sure that there's some there's some psychological reasons for that or spiritual reasons, and maybe it's the devil. Maybe that there's an accuser out there who's like, that's good for everybody else, but you're horrible. You're worse than that. And God's like, look, there's nothing worse than what happened to my son. I will redeem it. I will re and sometimes it just takes some time. Sometimes it just takes some time to kind of marinate and reflect on the death of Jesus and recognize that Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That somehow, that somehow he does this. All right, I'm, I'm a little off the notes here. It's okay. I, I, thank you for indulging. couple things as we look at what is fulfilled and what is finished. There's a couple things that Jesus does on the cross that... John wants to point to as a point of fulfillment of Scripture. Look at 1923. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. So he's got, there's five pieces of clothing, probably his shoes, his belt, his outer garment, uh, and there's one other thing. Oh, a head covering. Those four things. And probably what they did is they, they rolled dice, to see who would get it. It's like a lottery. You roll the dice, hey, you won. Now you get to choose what you get. So someone's like, I'll take the shoes. And then they roll the dice, and someone says, I'll take the belt. This is all while the condemned is looking down, watching everything that he owns being gambled away. The one thing that remains is his tunic. And they don't want to divide it up, so they throw the dice again to figure out which one of them gets it. Now, with this, this is, pro this is a... a a fulfillment, and what John notes as a fulfillment 
of a passage in Psalm 22. Listen to Psalm 22. Written a thousand years earlier, a thousand years earlier than Jesus on the cross. And this is what Psalm 22, 16 says. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet, I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And John sees this as the culmination and enactment, the fulfillment of what was spoken through the psalmist a thousand years earlier. And as John takes us to the end, 1928, says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. says, a jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Okay, a little bit in the weeds here, okay, sour wine, you might think, what is the sour wine? It was wine that was kind of sort of fermented, it wasn't very sweet, but it, it had, it was diluted with water, but it had kind of a thirst-quenching property to it, it was kind of the, 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 the wine of the, of the Roman soldiers and the masses, the lower class, but it actually was something that was supposed to kind of wet your whistle and actually was quenching, it wasn't an act of like mockery that they were giving it to him, it was actually something they that they actually had it available for the crucifixion. And it says that he asks for it. He says, I thirst. And they, they use a sponge, and they soak the sponge in, in this wine. And it says they put it on a hyssop branch. Now, hyssop is not, there's some questions. Because um, whether a hyssop branch can reach up and hold that or whatever, um, the Greek word for a Roman spear or javelin is a huso. So some people think that they're, they're, it, it means a huso, that they put it on a spear and they hold it up to him on that. But I don't think that for the people who are reading the Gospel of John and they realize earlier on in the Gospel of John, Jesus, John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And people start to think about the Passover and when the blood was put on the doorpost in the Passover, what did they use to put the blood on the doorpost of the Passover? They used hyssop branches. And so John is probably, again, in this point, this, this, as, the, as the book of John comes to this point of, of climax, all of these things are being fulfilled. And so Jesus, as the Passover lamb, as the one who's been sacrificed, that we have this hyssop branch that is playing this part in this entirety. The wine probably allows him, after all that has gone on, to kind of wet his mouth to speak the very last word. That's probably why he asks for this. So it's not, it's not a wine that in the other Gospels they give him a wine that's supposed to be like a sedative. This is not that. He asks for this so that he can actually speak out what he's going to say. And what he says, in Greek the word is tetelestai. It has been completed. Or it is finished. And then it says Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And one of the things that John wants everyone to understand is one, that Jesus, even though, and we saw this with the trial, even though Jesus is being crucified, he is being uh, executed by the Romans, 
John wants to make it clear that Jesus is still in charge. He doesn't just die. What he does is he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. So there's something about the Gospel of John that's even a little different than some of the other Gospels that John wants to make it clear Jesus is intentionally doing this. And when we talk about it is finished, what, one of the questions that comes up is what is finished? And I think in, in the Gospel of John, what is finished is the work that the Father has given Jesus to do. Now there's going to be, look, the, the resurrection is going to happen. Isn't that something that has to happen too? Like, how can you say it is finished? Like, he's got to be raised. He's going to appear to Thomas. He's going to reinstate Peter. Like, that still seems like work to do. But for Jesus, there is this sense in which what he is doing, where he's at on the cross, is the end of what he has come to accomplish. Jesus' work is finished. He came to do God's work. In John 4, 34, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work, to finish his work. That's what he said in chapter 4. Keep in mind, on the cross, he says, it is finished. And in chapter 4, he says, my purpose is to come and to finish the work. In 536, but the testimony I have is greater than John for the works that the Father has given me to finish the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. This idea that Jesus has come to finish work. And in his high priestly prayer in chapter 17, as he comes to the end, he says, I glorified you on earth, having finished the work you gave me to do. And for Jesus, as he's on the cross, he is saying, okay, this is the last bit of my work. This is what I've come to do. And whatever, whatever that might mean, the mighty work of redemption has met its consummation. It is finished is the cry of a victor. We might look at, we might look at like, hey, the, the, the crucifixion, and this could be a little bit of how other gospel writers see this, that the crucifixion is this horrible thing that now has to be overcome, and then Easter Sunday is when all of that is overcome. John is really interesting because he says, no, we don't, even though Easter is coming, this is not a moment of defeat. This is a moment of victory. This is a moment of victory. Again, to the irony of John, what looks like defeat is actually victory. What looks like humiliation is actually the moment of his greatest glorification. And we know this, we know this because back in chapter 3, Jesus said this when Nicodemus comes to him. He says this, hey, Nicodemus, you know the scriptures, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And Jesus is saying this, that crucifixion not only obviously exalted, but lifted up in crucifixion is being lifted up in exaltation. And John, again, with this double meaning, this irony. In 828, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing of my own authority, but speak as the Father taught me. So again, back to this idea that Jesus is saying, look, when I am lifted up, people will see and people will know. In 1232, when the book turns 
Whenever up until this point, everybody, Jesus is like, my hour is not yet come, my hour is not yet come, my hour is not yet come. Chapter 12, some Greeks come, and he's like, the hour has come. And he says this, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And for Jesus, there is this interesting, he goes to the cross he goes to his own trial, but he's the one asking questions. He goes to the cross where they're trying to humiliate him, but he is like, I will be exalted. I have come to do the work of my Father, and this is the work of my Father. And for some reason or another, I don't, and again, you're like, Pastor Craig, how and why? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know why God does it like this. But it's the cross and the cross alone that seals Jesus' mission. And in retrospect, illuminates and explains everything that led up to it. And I think maybe it's quite like, how does the death of Jesus work on my behalf? How does the death of Jesus work on your behalf? I mean, there's a few things in the Gospel of John, like maybe the death of Jesus, and he says that the death, his death will be the greatest example of love, that greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends, right? It's an example of love, that he is gone and he has loved his own to the end. In chapter 10, Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd, and what does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He protects the sheep. And we saw that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like, if you've come for me, let, leave these alone, so he's protecting his sheep. Early in the gospel, when John the Baptist sees him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I think John wants to make it clear that for some reason or another, eternal life, eternal life is available and accessible by means of death. Why? How? I don't, that's just the way it is. Jesus says, look, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it doesn't produce the fruit it's going to produce. And Jesus says, then I must die in order that fruit may come. More followers, the Gentiles, redeeming, the, fulfilling the law, fulfilling the scriptures. I think... I taught a class at Biola and at Fuller Seminary called The Cross in the New Testament. And in this, it's what uh, theologians talk, we, we talk about uh, atonement theology, the theology of the atonement. There's all kinds of theories about what is accomplished by the cross, like how the death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and, and our faith, how that all works together to work out whatever salvation is. And so we work through all of these different ideas about what happens with the death of Jesus, that somehow, and whether it's, a, whether it's a, a payment, whether the death of Jesus is a payment, a ransom, that is paid, that redeems us from slavery, that's one metaphor that's used. Another metaphor is that Jesus is a high priest and that by offering himself, offers priestly work and that that blood cleanses us from sin. That's another analogy, another metaphor. 
Maybe many of us think about the death of Jesus as a sacrifice that in our place, like depending on what tradition you might come from, if you've heard this before, there's different analogies that might be made or different metaphors, that the death that was meant for us, that Jesus has been a substitute for us. I love what C.S. Lewis said about atonement theory. He says, look, lots of denominations have one way or another way of thinking about this. And he says, compare it to this idea of, um, like when we eat, we have, this, we, have, we have theories about what happens when we put food into our bodies. Does anybody know that we have these theories about these things? This is how diet fads start. Like, what happens when you put, like, carbohydrates into your body? You're, you all probably have ideas. Like, well, carbohydrates, like, like, like gluten, it'll kill you. No, I don't, you know, look, I don't know, okay? But whatever it is, and there's all these theories. There's all these theories, like vitamins, and you need this. You need these nutrients and these nutrients. And we have these theories of, like, vitamins and carbohydrates and proteins. And what C.S. Lewis says is, if one day, if one day, we learn so much about food in our bodies that we ditch this whole idea of vitamins and carbohydrates and proteins, and we went to a whole new paradigm of understanding how food interacts with our body. You know what would happen? People would still eat their dinner. And what I want to say to you is, however we think about what Jesus, how the death of Jesus makes us right with God. You might have one idea about how that works or one preferred way of thinking about it. Maybe it's that it's a substitute. Maybe that his death is a payment. Look, if one day you were like, I don't know about the substitute thing, I don't know about the payment thing, look, it wouldn't stop you from putting your faith in Jesus. Eat your dinner, everybody. No matter what you think about how it affects you, the truth is, it does. I have seen so many lives transformed by the gospel. I have seen so many people be given hope. In my own life, I have been given hope. I have been given purpose. However we might think about it, it should not stop us from putting our faith in Jesus. Even if one theory or another. And so what I want, I just put forth to you, the gospel of John in chapter 19 talks about the death of Jesus. It's the climax of the book. What evil humans have meant for evil, God has made all things right by means of. Somehow, in this great mystery, the blood of Jesus and the death of Jesus, when they are coupled with faith in Jesus, they put you right with God and will one day make all things right. I don't know how that all works. I don't. But I do know that it does. And I don't know where you're at today, where you're at with Jesus, but I just want to, I want to put forth to you what John, if John were here today, he would say, these things I have written, Jesus did a lot of other things, but these things I have written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have eternal life. And what is believing? Believing is simply putting your faith, your trust in Jesus, turning, facing to God, and saying, I know that I'm a sinner. And I trust whatever Jesus has done on the cross, applied to me, will put me in a right relationship with you, Father. Look, salvation is being reconciled to a father on this Father's Day, being reconciled to a father through the work of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we have a great view of the work of the Son right here. 
And there's no better time than today to say, Father, I want to be reconciled to you through the work of your son. And if you've never done that before, it's just simple. You just pray to God. You speak to God. Talk to God. Why don't we all bow? I'm just, we're going to pray. Father, thank you for this time. And if there, are, if there are any people in here that maybe have never put their faith in Jesus, just a simple prayer.